be damned if the same politicians who refused to act then are going to try to come back today. The real content of any kind of revolutionary thrust lies in the, in, in the principles and the goals that you're striving for. When the powerful use their position to bully others, we all lose. A system of justice will be the richer for diversity of background and experience. And correction! Hello, everybody. It's me, Miss Cracker. I'm here with my co-pilot, Caitlin, and it's time for She's a Woman. It's a podcast for every human being who looks into the mirror and says, she's a woman. And today we're going to talk about red carpet fashion. Just kidding. We're going to talk about feminism again. (laughs) Every week we talk to incredible women of all kinds from all walks of life and invite them to share their stories with you, our incredible listeners. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. Now, Caitlin, we have a lot to talk about today. But first, I want to talk about a fun time that we had last weekend. We took a little walk through Manhattan because you walked the entire length of the city from stem to stern, okay? And I wanted to know, what was your inspiration? How was it? It was great. And I saw... Jan Sport and her uh, boyfriend EJ do it. And it just looked like they had such a fun time. And so then I started thinking about doing it. And it's been kind of on my mind. And I was kind of like, well, I've been more in shape. So I bet I could like actually handle it. So I like planned a day and uh, then I did it. And it was great. It's like 14 miles in total, I think. But um, my tracker said by the end of the day, it was like 19 miles. I guess if you count like all the other things, you know what I mean? Shopping. Right. We started at 225th Street and went all the way down to Battery Park, which is the top to bottom of Manhattan. Yeah. It was really amazing. I joined you for 100 blocks. Yeah. And I didn't think about this, but really touring the city right now, gives you a view of how much has changed over the last year. On the negative side, there's so many places that we used to go when you were living with Bob the Drag Queen, like ice cream shops and little restaurants that we used to go all the time that are closed now, and it kind of broke my heart. But also, you know what? Things are opening up, and there's a lot of new places too, and it kind of made me think about You know, I'm ready to fall back in love with the city again. I'm ready to go see some new things, try some new things. Yeah, me too. I I did get emotional walking through some of my old areas like Washington Heights where I lived and the Upper West Side where uh, I lived with Bob. I'd be like, oh my God, these are the places I used to go to these spots every day. Yeah, but it also just reminded me that there's... There's so much in the city and even walking the route we did, I'm kind of like, I think I might want to do this again and then maybe walk like the east side right? and see different things. Like, I don't know. I don't know what the route would be, but we walked down Broadway, which is on the west side. And I think if I did it again, I would choose a different route to maybe see some different areas that I haven't spent a lot of time in. I, I kind of want to do the east side too because – Every time you do a walk through the city, you kind of get to see how it's stitched together and what it's, it's like, the city's like a brain and you get to see, visit different parts of its mind. You know what I mean? Like that. And it's just like, I love that so much. So what I want to tell you listeners is that, you know, as we come out of this, walking outside is one of the safest things you can do. 
And you should do it. You should go take a walk through your town and see what's changed, what's gone, what's new, and maybe get a new perspective for what you want to do with 2021 because we are halfway through it and it's time to like make the most of it. I feel like I could walk anywhere now. You know what I mean? I'm like, next time I take an Uber, I'm going to be like, oh, well, I know I could walk the length of Manhattan. So do I have an excuse for taking this Uber, you know? I always have an excuse. I, know, I always I know. have an excuse for taking an Uber. Well, of course, immediately. Now I'm like, I my legs are so sore from walking the 18 miles. I have to take an Uber everywhere now till my legs are on, not sore. <laughs> anyway, listeners, give it a try. Take a walk through your city and enjoy it. But now, Caitlin, it's time for one of my favorite parts of the whole podcast, And something that our listeners like very much, too. It's time for the good news. I want to dive right into our serious groundbreaking interview. But first, I have a little treat for you. Every week, we do a little segment called Here's the Good News, where we share positive stories torn from the headlines. The idea is that they'll bring you, our listeners, a little hope during these difficult times. And this week, our news is all about Treats! Caitlin, this one came from you. Now, this isn't hot off the press news or anything. It's been going on for some time. But it was news to Caitlin and I when we found out about it, and we think it will be news to most of our listeners, too. According to Time magazine, in Istanbul, Turkey, where an estimated 150,000 stray dogs and cats reportedly wander the streets, a Turkish company called Pugidon believes it has come up with a way to feed the animals. Smart recycling boxes, a machine that dispenses food and water in exchange for recycled plastic bottles. Here's the deal. Instead of throwing their water into the trash, pedestrians in Istanbul can walk up to a special machine, pour the last bit of their water into it, and then dispense of their bottle in the special receptacle. As soon as they do, the excess water drops into a special dog bowl, and a little bit of food drops into a dish. And stray dogs can have a little sip and a little munch. The water is free and the bottle pays for a couple of kibbles. It's perfect. I love it so much. It makes me so happy to know that you can like recycle your water bottle. And then some stray dog who's probably hungry and thirsty can get a nice little refreshment. It's like a win-win for everyone. (laughs) For everybody. (laughs) Yeah, they have these videos up of dogs you know, kind of hanging around the machine waiting for somebody to put a bottle in so he can have a little snack. They're so smart. They know. They figured it out that if they stand by that machine, they're going to get some treats eventually. And it gets rid of what... It's just like, it's such a great idea. And I feel like it should be all over every city. Not just for strays, but for... If you're like out walking your dog and yeah, you know, like then your dog could get some free treats as you uh, do something good and recycle, you know? Absolutely. I love this story because it covers two of our favorite topics on this podcast, dogs and the environment. First of all, it's a system that makes dogs happy, like you're saying, Caitlin. Yes. Which we we know that's a priority. But second, it's a creative way to encourage people to see the benefits of recycling. Anytime we can do even one of those things, I think it's great news. Listeners, tell us what you think. And by the way, if you've heard of any creative ways to care for dogs or the planet, Just send it in. We're always looking for good news, and we'd love to have you involved. I wish I invented that machine, you know. i got to think of something something else to make dogs happy. (laughs) I feel like after you are finished with the drag world, you are going to go into some kind of dog business. 
right? I, yeah, I, maybe. I feel like whenever I get into a business or something, it ruins it for me. But maybe dogs will be the immunity to that. I don't right? know. I don't know. Yeah, dogs may be that passion that yeah. guides your life. Yep. Like the passions that guide the lives of so many of our guests. So I want to get to the interview. But first, let's take a little break. Okay, we're back. Now, before we begin, I want to say this. If you enjoy your time with us today, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. We love reviews. We are scrounging around for them whenever we can find them, are we not? Oh, yeah. I think we were just talking to someone about our podcast, and we were like, by the way... Go leave us a review. We love them. We think about them constantly. Yep. We love them so much. We're going to read some of our favorite reviews at the end of the show. But we're not there yet. <laughs> it's time for our interview. Now, Caitlin, tell me about our guest today, Nell Diamond, who is the founder and CEO of Hill House Home. Well, I don't know about these people listening or if I'm going to sound stupid saying this, but do you, you know how, do you ever have just like an Instagram crush where you just like look at their life on Instagram and you're like, this person, I wish this was my life and my Instagram. Oh, absolutely. That's how I feel about <laughs> Nell Diamond. And I can't even remember how or when I found her, I think probably just she showed up on something on Instagram one day years ago. And I started following her ever since. And then I got my friend Catherine into following her. And now we just share her posts back and forth. And we're like, what a great, we wish we had her life. We wish we had like our own like home care company with a brownstone in the West Village with like an adorable family and, you know, and I'm yep. and like long, beautiful hair. Yep. And so I just love it. And I think her interviews and the way she talks about kind of like celebrating all the feminine aspects of herself. I think I just love the way she talks about it and how she came from banking and she felt forced to be a certain way to kind of appease the male banking world. And she was like, I want to have a job where I can dress in heels and dresses. Yeah. Kind of like you, you know? Yes, I know. That's, that's very true. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I just found her on Instagram randomly like four or something years ago. And now I'm just, I think she's so fascinating. And listening to her interviews, I have found that she has so much in common with us. So I'm very excited to dive in. All right, everybody. Nell Diamond is founder and CEO of Hill House Home, a lifestyle brand offering bedding, bath, baby accessories, and apparel, including their widely loved nap dress, TM, which became an internet sensation during the pandemic. Nell received a BA from Princeton University and MBA from the Yale School of Management. Prior to starting Hill House Home, she worked as a fixed income analyst at Deutsche Bank, Born and raised in London, Nell lives in New York City and is a mom of three, which is very important to you. So, Nell Diamond, I just want to ask, where are you? How are you? What are you doing? Hi. Well, first of all, I'm so excited uh, to be talking to you. I'm coming to you live from my bedroom window in New York City, which is my little quarantine pandemic desk. Oh, wow. Well, we just want to tell you, Caitlin, my producer and co-pilot, has followed you and Hill House Home forever. And we were just rambling on about Caitlin is such a big fan of you, loves your stuff. So this is this is a fangirl moment for us here at the House of Cracker. 
Oh my God. I'm delighted. And Caitlin, you're the reason I went on a run this morning after listening to some of the stuff you've been saying on the podcast. I'm like, I need to just do it. Stop thinking about it and just do it. <laughs> oh my gosh. See, this is what we're here to do. We are here to <laughs> inspire each other. <laughs> I say, I say run very loosely, by the way. It was like oh. really a walk, but you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Earlier in the podcast, we were talking about how Caitlin walked from the top of Manhattan to the bottom. And I was like, Caitlin, I'm going to join you on that. I'm going to do this journey with you. And I made it about a hundred blocks. <laughs> I couldn't, I, I did it, but nobody is as committed to things as Caitlin is, you know? <laughs> so this is what I ask all of my guests. I always ask, you know, how did you do um, in the pandemic? How did it treat you? But you actually have a unique story about creating a sensational item in 2020, the nap dress. I was wondering if you could tell us the story of this incredible item, which is gorgeous and comfortable and much loved and how the idea came about. Yes, definitely. So we launched the nap dress in 2019. So pre-pandemic, um, mm -hmm. but this last year is, has definitely taken on a life of its own. And the kind of origin story is really that I am a dress girl. I have always been a dress girl. I just really do not like pants. <laughs> I find them very uncomfortable, not to mention unflattering on my particular body shape. Um, <laughs> and I love dresses. Like it's just who I have been kind of my whole life. And Hill House has always kind of been about combining practicality and beauty at the same time. So our very first product was bedding. And, you know, I love a good monogram. I love some nice kind of starched, beautiful, colorful sheets. But at the same time, you know, I have three kids. I want to throw them in the washing machine and not have to like be super high maintenance about them. And I feel that way about my clothing too. I always think about that um, in Clueless when Cher is like talking about her party clothes being too constricting. And that's maybe why she's going crazy. You're speaking our language right now. Yeah. <laughs> I really feel that. It's like, I want to feel my best and feel like myself, but at the same time, I would like to be comfortable. So the nap dress really came out of that. So I wanted to kind of create a product that could carry me through, you know, the 5am wake up with my son all the way through to, you know, important work meetings. And then theoretically in a post COVID world, you know, going out and socializing, which is a very foreign concept to me right now, but I have hope for the future. So that's how the nap dress was born. And I was pretty nervous. I mean, I thought like, I thought like people really may think this is an awful thing <laughs> and have no interest in wearing a dress um, that's both comfortable and pretty at the same time. But, you know, when we first launched it, I think it was in the summer of 2019. Since then, kind of every time we do one of our little drops, um, they they end up selling out. So it's been, you know, our, our, our kind of most popular product. And it's been so exciting to see how much people really connect um, with, with this kind of like piece of fabric that we created. <laughs> it's perfect for the quarantine, as you've said, because you can, you can wake up and do your zoom meeting in your, uh, essentially in your, your, in your pajamas, in your nap yeah. dress and mm -hmm. still look like you are a businesswoman of power. And I think that's so perfect. I wanted to know when was the moment that you realized that it was taking off? Like, I'm sure it, it always did well, but when were you like, oh my gosh, this is becoming a thing? 
You know, I think I've like, I'm a very dramatic person. I've kind of always imagined that question being asked to me, like, when did you know, you know, like, <laughs> the kind right. of like um, envisioning your own success, but no, I think it's, it's been interesting because it's been a bunch of little moments that I think have been really exciting for us. And, and this is not just me, right. We have a Hill house team and, and um, amazing factory partners that work with us that have contributed to, you know, massively to the success of this product. And I think it's been a bunch of little moments and that's part been compounded by being inside all year. Like, you know, I mentioned I'm sitting at my bedroom window right now. I, I literally like had this moment, you know, at this point, like maybe like eight or nine months ago, where from my bedroom window, I saw someone wearing a nap dress on the street. And I had always been imagining like what was going to happen when I saw somebody wearing our product in real life. And it was this crazy moment. I'm like on a zoom call and like on my phone at the same time. And I like basically like threw my computer off the windowsill, like laid down on the floor, like could not believe I was seeing somebody exist in the world with this thing that we had created. And that was, you know, beyond surreal. Um, now, you know, last week I was walking around, I live in the West village in New York. I was walking around the West village and I saw four nap dresses and I literally like, I, I just don't know if I'll ever get over that. It's truly so crazy because we take this, this thing from, you know, first sketch, first tech pack to, you know, the TOP samples to the photos we get from our factory all the way to our warehouse. And then it exists. And it, it's like a child that we're sending off to college, you know, living a nice, happy life, hopefully with its <laughs> new owner. Um, and yeah. that's been really exciting to, to see. You know, that makes me think of the fact that I have been in quarantine and I forget that the outside world exists. So whenever I go out into the world and someone goes, oh, I love your pickle skit that you did on RuPaul's Drag Race, or I love this uh, merch product that Caitlin designed. I'm like, oh my gosh, I forgot that what I'm doing is making an impact in the world. And that feels so good. And you just realize that you exist and that you yeah, <laughs> that you actually <laughs> are making an impact. So, yeah. yeah, I love those moments. But as you know, from listening to the podcast, I always like to rewind a little bit at this point. My favorite part of this podcast is being able to hear the stories of incredible women from the very beginning. And that's what I want to do with you. You've always been obsessed with bedrooms since you were a kid. Can you talk about what you were like growing up and what that passion was like? Very strange child. I was a very strange child. I continue to be a very strange adult. Um, but I, so I grew up moving a lot. So I was born in London and then we lived in Japan for a bit. Um, at, but the, but the bulk of my life was spent in the UK and my parents are American, hence the, the no accent, but okay. I moved to schools all the time. So I think the longest I was like ever in a school was four years. And that was kind of very pivotal to my childhood experience, right? Because I would go from these schools and I remember going particularly from one kind of very English all girls school to the American international school, both in the UK and London. Um, and this, like the social code and anthropology is just so different at every school, you know, like the rules of like how you're supposed to behave as kind of like a preteen and a teen. And I remember, you know, kind of realizing at a very early age that I was just going to have to figure out what felt good to me because I was never going to be able to like meet all these different codes at all the time. 
And that required me to do, I think, some introspection at an early age that I'm really glad I had to do. You know, I had to figure out like what makes me feel the most like myself, what makes me happy as opposed to, you know, I think be pressured by other people to like adapt their interests or adapt their codes of being. Um, And my parents used to call it letting my freak flag fly. They're like, no, really? And my dad, my dad still says she really marches to the beat of her own drum. Um, Right. And that was like, you know, in terms of my interest, in terms of how I dressed and particularly as it relates to how I dress, I think, you know, clothes have always been incredibly powerful and incredibly important to me. I just really purely love fashion. I love getting dressed. I love, you know, visual things like that. And I remember being really little and buying a, like they had these like life-size Barbies, which were life-size for toddlers. And I would wear the clothes to school. And it was like the most important thing to me to wear these clothes to school, these like little glitter jelly Barbie shoes. Um, and my parents were always very, I remember my mom telling me that she would get feedback from other parents. Like, why are you letting, like, it was actually around makeup. So my mom took me, I think when I was like 10 or 11 to the Mac store in, uh, on Kings road in Chelsea in London, where we lived at the time. And she let me pick out a lilac purple lipstick and this glitter eyeshadow and I was, it was, you I mean, I, I got an Oscar. It was like the most important thing that anyone had ever given me. <laughs> and um, I remember her like telling me later when I was in my twenties that she had parents be to her, like, how could you, like, she's a smart girl. How could you give her makeup? How could you give her all this stuff? And it's just so crazy to me to think that that was like the messaging back then. Because right. Because you can't so, do both. You can't like really like these parents were saying that with a straight face. You can't right. you know wear purple lipstick and be serious at the same time. So anyway, that's that's kind of me as a child. <laughs> yeah, it sounds to me as you were telling the story, I was thinking as you were moving around a lot and you had a lot of transition in your life, you learned to make yourself the constant. Yeah, totally. And and I wonder if you got your love of the comforts of the the bedroom and all of that from uh, wanting to make a home in places and make places your own, even though you were moving a lot. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think my mom really taught me that, you know, both of my parents had kind of never even been on a plane until they were in their late, you know, late mid to late twenties. And then they were moving around the world with their three little kids. And so I think they, you know, were very, especially my mom was very focused on making sure that things felt like home, even when they weren't permanent. And I think that that taught me, we do have the power to do that. Right. Like I, even in my college dorm room, like there are steps that I take to make something feel like home and those things are in my power. Um, And I think that, you know, having that realization that there are so many things in this world that are completely out of our control. Right. But here are a few things I can do to take back that control. And even if there is small, this is, you know, why I think what, what I love, what we're doing at Hell House Home so much, even if it's as small as making your bed in the morning, brushing your teeth, like taking that shower, like you can bring joy to those moments. You can make those moments feel like you. And particularly as it relates to products. I mean, I remember like moving to New York city, you know, for my first job and living with roommates from college and going out to buy, you know, just my towels. 
and being like, this is money that I just made, right? Like I worked hard for this. Like, I don't want a beige towel. Other people might, (laughs) but like, it should feel great to me. Everything you buy, everything you put around you, you know, I think it's not too much to ask to have it feel great to you. And so I kind of have a no apologies about that, um, you know, demanding that from the things around me in my life. So you were talking about your college experience. You went to Princeton University and then the story of your career begins on Wall Street. You were working with Deutsche Bank and you loved the people that you worked with, but not what you were doing. Can you tell me about this time a little bit? Yes, absolutely. And I am delighted to realize that I'm your second Princeton guest because you had Kat Cohen who went Woo! to Um, yes. So I went to, I went to work in finance, you know, really uh, out of, it was the funniest thing. It was, you know, you're, I was a senior in college and I got a job offer and I I was kind of sitting there thinking about this job offer and thinking, okay, do I want to sit through the rest of my senior year knowing that I have like a confirmed thing or do I want to like, you know, at the end of my senior year, start searching for a job. And I'm somebody who always loves, loves structure, loved kind of having a plan and knowing exactly where I'm going, which is why it's hilarious that I'm now an entrepreneur because there's no structure. Um, But I loved that. I felt like I couldn't, I felt like I couldn't turn that down, that opportunity to have another structured thing in my life. Um, But then, you know, the signs were all there. I think the night before I started, and it's so funny, this is about clothes. I had a, you know, what I would now recognize as a total panic attack. And it was around what I had to wear to work the next day. So I was wearing like, you know, baggy pantsuit that did not feel good to me. And I love a pantsuit. I think a pantsuit can be very, very chic, but this pantsuit did not feel like me. (laughs) I felt like I was putting on a costume. And I think that that represented so much to me, what I would have to do to myself to exist in a job that, that didn't feel like it was me. So, you know, I made the most of it. I, I definitely, as, as you mentioned, kind of loved the people I worked with and felt like I got, you know, a great sense of how to work a job and be responsible and, you know, get into work at 6am, which I'm very proud of myself for doing back then. Um, but at the end of the day, this, the subject matter was just totally uninteresting to me. And I think I felt, you know, really not challenged and, and, uh, in the right ways and, and knew that this was not something that I wanted to do long-term. Was there like a specific moment that you were at your desk and you were like, this is, this is the last straw. I knew it from baggy suit day one. And now it's just like, I know that this is not right. I think it was a slow burn. You know, I was, so I was on a fixed income trading desk and on the sales side, and I had friends who were in equities and in equities, they were doing things like reading research reports on these great, you know, iconic retail brands. Right. And I think that there had been like something missing in my brain, connecting the fact that even doing that, I would have preferred, right. Analyzing like these stores are performing, analyzing, you know, I had this emotional relationship with all of these like great iconic brands like Gap and Ralph Lauren. And I remember Abercrombie and Fitch being like the most important thing to 13 year old Nella London. And that was actually my first job was at Abercrombie and Fitch. So, um, you know, I think there was a moment when I was working in banking where I saw like, you know, maybe I could have a, you know, work on the retail side, work in, work, you know, in, in kind of a consumer products area and, you know, still exercise the kind of quantitative side of my brain. Um, so I think it was a slow burn rather than like a moment when I knew. 
it wasn't that like stand up and walk out of the office with a box of your things like I'm leaving. You know? no, I would have loved that. Like fashion, here I come. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, you went on to study at the Yale School of Management. Um, and I love the way you talk about working with other people that were following their passions. You were working with people that were trying to figure out how to transport organs and you were thinking about pretty pillows and stuff like that. So you would think that you had nothing in common with the other people around you, with your peers, but you actually had a lot in common with them. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so I chose to go to business school because I had the idea for Hill House Home, but I knew that I didn't have the kind of fundamental business knowledge to run it. And it was always really important to me. (laughs) It was always really important to me to build a company that was profitable. And especially in 2016, you know, you'd be surprised that was definitely not the trend for kind of startup companies. And I wanted to, you know, be able to sleep at night and know that, you know, we were able to keep the lights on. I wanted to kind of build something that had a great, strong financial base. Um, And I certainly knew that I needed help with that. So I applied to business school. I applied to the Yale School of Management and they have a great entrepreneurship program. Um, which I continue to be involved with today. And it was like a little incubator. And so there were all these students who were wanted to start their own companies. And as you mentioned, literally, there was this incredible duo of people who were joint degrees with the Yale Medical School and were figuring out how to transport organs in a safer and, you know, smarter way. And we did share so much, you know, like even everything from like trademarking your intellectual property to figuring out payroll to, you know, right before I was, I'm doing this podcast with you. I just had an hour on the phone talking about our 401k plan. And there are Mm -hmm. so many kind of consistent things across any type of startup business. And I think that was really amazing for me to have a little community of kind of other entrepreneurs who were going through similar things. It taught me a lot. Yeah. There's something, this is something that I've noticed with this podcast is I have expected to struggle in getting to understand some of our guests, like as we've mentioned before, we've had a a NASCAR driver. um, And I thought, this is a field that I know nothing about. There's gonna be no way that we have anything in common. But then you find that people that are uh, driven by their passions, they have so much to say to each other. And if you get into a group of people with that with the same drive and passion as you, you will find inspiration from so many unexpected places. A lot of people around you, you mentioned this, kind of poo-pooed your interests saying that you just love shopping, but you came to see your love of brands and decorating and and home goods as, as a lead in to creating your own brand. And I kind of wanted you to talk a little bit about what people around you were saying when you were just getting started with your business. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely the type of person and my therapist deals with this who like hears the negative stuff, I think more than the positive stuff. Right. And so I think that I have like a special folder in my brain for every mean thing anyone's ever said to me, Um, but (laughs) certainly around kind of my choice of career. I mean, I remember, you know, not having the words to understand my interest when I was younger. So, you know, Topshop was my favorite store in the world. And I used to, on Saturdays, like literally 
walk to the top shop in Oxford Circus in London and like just stand there. And like, I just wanted to see the other shoppers and how they were styling things and look at what had been like put out on the floor that day. And, and, you know, I think I would never, if somebody had asked me back then, you know, what are your hobbies? I would have been totally embarrassed to be like, I like to shop, but that's not what it was. Right. I wasn't sitting there like, you know, blowing through cash. I was sitting there, you know, really what that is now is, is like real retail research and like, consumer psychology that I was kind of watching. And so I think I didn't have a name for that interest. And as I've gotten older, I've realized that that interest propels a massive, massive industry that can, you know, play a huge role in people's lives. Um, And then I think, you know, in any business, you know, we've been around for five years, almost six years. And there are many, many times when I think people have sort of thought like, oh, cute little business type of thing. And you kind of have to swallow that and like, you know, just keep plugging, keep working. I mean, I found that I was pregnant with my older son a week after launching Hill House Home in 2016. And I was 27 years old. And that's like being a teen mom in New York, you know, like, yes, (laughs) what's a baby? Um, Same, me too. I was like, what's a baby? Um, And I remember meeting with somebody who like, you know, everyone had told me, oh, this is like an amazing connection for you and networking and hashtag, like, you know, all that stuff. And I met with this guy and he, like the first thing he said to me when he found out I was pregnant was, well, yeah, it's a really cute business, but you'll probably lose interest after the baby's born. And I just remember like logging that away in my nice little, like Billy Madison, like lipstick kill list that lives in my brain. And I was like, okay, okay, I'll remember you. And, you know, like maybe six years later, that guy is like, maybe heard of an app dress, probably not, but I, I'm waiting <laughs> I'm waiting for my moment. <laughs> yeah, that's so incredible. I was just about to ask you what was your biggest challenge in starting the business, but you were starting, your biggest challenge was you were starting a new family, a new life and a new mm-hmm. business all sort of at the same time. And uh, a lot of the people that we talk to on this podcast, people challenge them about whether they're going to be able to balance their family and their their career. And I just think that's such an odd thing to ask. Um, and I was wondering yeah. if people had had aimed that at you as well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So I had twin babies in October. So this 2020 was also a big, you know, pregnancy year for me. I I grew two humans with my body, got them out of there safely. And congratulations. um, Thank you. Thank you. And it's so funny to me that like these two biggest eras of Hell Houses change, right? That like first year and then this year, which has been a growth year for us, have both been paired with, you know, motherhood for me and pregnancy. And I do, you know, I think that I was like that first year of motherhood is like truly the craziest thing I've ever been through, but so was entrepreneurship in many ways. And I think the one really positive thing for me about combining kind of motherhood and and work has been this idea that I kind of constantly have perspective. And I think that especially in, I felt like, you know, my age range we kind of got sold this story, right? That like work is supposed to be your identity and like work is supposed to be like, you know, solve all your ills and you are your accomplishments. And I think that can be a really difficult narrative to get rid of. And having three little humans who rely on me every day to literally eat has kind of shifted my perspective and reminded me that that no matter what goes wrong at work or what goes well at work, at the end of the day, it is a job, right? 
And like, it gives me that perspective of remembering, you know, how much else there is in the world. And so I'm really grateful for that. I think that perspective is huge, especially when things go, when things go wrong and when things go well at work. Um, so I, I think it's been, it's been good to have, um, have the combination of both. And it's also, you know, certainly taught me that, um, I'm, I can be incredibly efficient if I have to be. <laughs> a lot of the products that you work with are lace and fabrics and pillows and sheets. And as you say, things that we stereotypically associate with women's work and you have often talked about wanting to reclaim this area and rethink it. I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so for me, it really is this idea. So I've always presented myself in this kind of very archetypally feminine way, right? Like I wear, you know, puffy sleeves and headbands and hair bows and love makeup and heels. And I love that. That's who I am. But um, I think at, at the at the same time, I certainly challenge many traditional notions of what a woman is and who she should be and how she should act. Um, and so I think it's, it's, I love the idea that we're taking these things that are kind of traditionally feminine, like monogram pillowcases and, um, things that you do in your home and saying you can, you know, have those things and be a feminist at the same time and challenge gender norms at the same time. Um, you know, that it's not the absence of gender, right? The absence of gender isn't the kind of goal there, the absence of femininity. I think, you know, it's everyone's kind of, you know, ability to choose what feels right to them. And so my like old English teacher thing is, you know, show, don't tell. So Mm. we really loved being able to show the wide range of, of gender and women being who they are in our products, um, because it really is such a personal thing. And I think that's been really freeing for me, um, to kind of explore. I love something that you said, uh, why can't I really care about pink? And also get a promotion ahead of any man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's so funny because like now, you know, when we have our like investor meetings or our board meetings or like any of the scary things that like, you know, really intimidate me, I'm like more bows, more makeup, more hair. <laughs> I want yeah, absolutely. Like my armor now. Um, and I think it's it's been it's been so amazing to kind of be, you know, talk about that more and find find other other people who feel the same way. That's definitely one of the things that Caitlin and I talk about is, you know, we want to celebrate people however they are, whatever their gender expression is. And any kind of negative association with any expression is just not helpful to anyone. You should be able to, if you have a tomboy spirit and pink isn't your thing, that's wonderful. And if pink is your thing and you love makeup and lashes, and that's wonderful too. And that applies for young ladies and young gentlemen and everyone across the spectrum. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think it's so, so, so true. And that's like, you know, I think that's some of the pushback that I definitely got when I was younger was like, you know, this like early 2000s, like, you know, late 90s vibe of like, you know, if you're a feminist, then you don't do that. And it's like, no, that 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 there aren't that does not that does not make sense in in any way. You can be right. all, all of these things at once. Now, I have to ask because you you are a professional entrepreneur. You have been to Yale, studied the work. I want to know for young women that are listening, what is the biggest advice that you would give them if they're thinking about starting their own business? 
okay, two things. So I think A, B, and F for the long haul, you know, this is not a kind of quick, <laughs> this is not a quick process. As I said, you know, we're in our sixth year and, and we still have some of the same challenges we had in year one. So I think making sure that you're really in it for the long haul is super important. And then I think, you know, the like really old adage of like, you know, not taking your positive press too seriously, not taking your negative press too seriously, which is something I constantly try to work on. And I don't mean presses in like Vogue magazine. I mean, press like, you know, that comment at a dinner party that like you stayed up at night for, you know, a whole week thinking about, um, you know, really try and keep your blinders on and like focus on what your mission is, as opposed to, um, you know, kind of being reliant on that, that outside feedback. And that is so much easier said than done, (laughs) but that would be my biggest kind of piece of advice. That is such good advice. It's something that we talk about at Cracker Incorporated a lot because like you, I have a very negative focus. And when it comes to when I was looking at comments on uh, social media, including YouTube, it really was a process of me skimming past all of the positive comments and then fixating on one that was negative and just make it just staying awake because of that negative comment for a week. You know what I mean? Um, And that is, it is destructive, but just as destructive is if you are depending on other people's praise for your feelings of self-worth. And I think I got, I got into a real big problem with applause in 2020 because I learned to judge what I was doing based on getting applause and getting all of this positive feedback. And then suddenly it was very quiet and I had to learn how to be, how to be confident because of my own feedback to myself, not because of the outside world, even though it is wonderful to have that applause. Like, and honestly, for our listeners, I'm going to be honest, I'm still working on it. And I think it's a lifelong process, but I'm, I think I'm getting, I think I'm getting the hang of it. I'm ready to take the training wheels off, you know? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, what an intense, beautiful metaphor to that, that kind of getting quiet. I mean, I think it, you're right. It's so not easy. I, I literally go to therapy every single Thursday for an hour, you know, to work on many things, but including that like kind of need for feedback is so human. Um, and it's not easy, but, but it is, it is lifelong work. I, mine is every Tuesday. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) during the pandemic, I went back, I was like, okay, let's work on all of this. And yeah. Uh, so also if you're listening, there's nothing wrong with getting a therapist to help you on this, on this feedback journey, because it is something we all struggle with. I remember, Um, One of the greatest thinkers of our time was Susan Sontag. And that's all I knew about her in college was that she was a great thinker and that we were reading her all the time and she was changing people's minds. And then later reading her diaries, I found out that she went to therapy for the exact same thing. So no matter how brilliant you are, no matter how great you're doing in life, no matter how much people are giving you respect and great reviews, you you can still struggle with this very simple thing. So, you know, it's just a little task that you have for your lifetime. <laughs> so now I want to know, I've heard that you have a number of products coming out soon and new visions for the summer. I want to know what's next for Hill House Home. 
Well, I'm so excited. We have, we're launching our bridal collection tomorrow, which I cannot wait for. Tomorrow is um, May 5th. That's going to be so exciting. And then um, in June, we are doing our big kind of, we do these drops for our nap dresses and it's our big summer drop is in June. And we have two amazing patterns. And one of the patterns is our mermaid pattern. And another one is called space floral, which is what it sounds like, literally spaceships and flowers. So I'm so excited to show the world those patterns and all the new products we have. It's lots of really, really fun stuff. And for our listeners, if you're if you don't know about the nap dress yet and you don't know about Hill House Home, we will be sharing images on our Instagram. She's a woman podcast, all one word, so that you can support Nell Diamond and Hill House Home and, you know, get into it because we love when our listeners dive in and become part of the lives of our guests. It just makes us so happy. So thank you so, so much for joining us today. I I can't tell you how happy you've made me and Caitlin. We're so excited to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. I was so pumped to hear that um, you guys wanted to have me on. So thank you. It's been such a treat. All right, Caitlin, dreams come true. You got to talk to Nell Diamond, your superhero. I know. I can't believe she had listened to other episodes. That makes me so happy and oh. also embarrassed because we are Idiots. stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite thing is to edit the introduction to our podcast because now you listeners may think we sound dumb, but you should hear it before the edit. We're talking about <laughs> earwigs and... <gasps> All different kinds of random subject matter. Uh, the Just the mysterious inner workings of our very mentally ill brains, yeah, you know? Yeah, just paranoid yeah. and depressed. So <laughs> paranoid, anxious, and depressed. But yeah, she, she made me really happy. I really want to do what she says and make my home more mine because I feel like I just have literally like my grandma's towels that I've been carrying around for forever. <laughs> oh, and yeah. My bedspread is literally whatever. And it should, I should make things nice so that I feel like I have a place in the world that's my home base and that's my fortress, you know? Yeah. I feel like I've done pretty good with that with my home. Oh, <laughs> For those of you who cannot see this, which is all of you, um, we are in Caitlin's apartment right now, and everything is pink, from her (laughs) dresser to her bedspread to her fur carpet, faux fur carpet, ladies, (laughs) and yeah, pink, white, and gold, so it looks like Valentine's Day in here at all times. It really does, and I I just believe that. I like um, coming back to my little brain space, you know what I mean? Yep. And... I have silk uh, Hill House pillowcases. Oh, my so, goodness. Oh, I see You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, enough about that. It's time for us to take a little break. Okay, we're back. First of all, I want to say this again. If you liked your time with us today, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. We love reviews. In fact, we love them so much... We're going to read some of our favorite reviews right here at the end of the show. Caitlin, legitimate question. (laughs) Do we have a favorite review this week? Okay, this one. In love with this show. This show is so incredible. I started watching because I'm a huge fan of Ms. Cracker, but I'm obsessed with this podcast. It's incredibly helpful and uplifting to hear the wonderful stories. Plus, the good news is always so great and makes my day. 
This podcast makes me even more proud and grateful to be a woman and to hear such incredible, successful women out there who are so inspiring. Thank you, Ms. Cracker, for using your platform to do such amazing things. Also, let me not neglect Caitlin. She's so wonderful. Thank Caitlin, you. you are wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I, my mother, our most important review source, was uh, talking to me on the phone yesterday, and she was saying how much she loves the guests. And I was like, well, that's because Caitlin is out there all the time looking for guests and, and bringing them in. It's true. I feel like I'm... I'm like, maybe it's a sign I spend too much time on social media because I'm always just like, oh, I, I like go through that like like rabbit hole of like clicking one thing leading to a next thing leading to another thing leading me to like a really fascinating person who I have never heard of before. You yeah. know what I mean? Well, thank God you do that. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> that's how we get our guests. Anyway. You're deeply appreciated, Caitlin. And listeners, we really appreciate you. So keep rating us, keep sending in reviews, and we'll keep reading them. But, Caitlin, now it's time for the most important part of the show. It's time for the credits. This podcast was produced by Caitlin Gretham, and then I did it. The cast includes me and also Caitlin. And it is distributed by the amazing Studio 71. So thank you for joining us today. Make sure to tune in next Monday for another exciting episode. And remember, if you ever feel down, all you have to do is look in the mirror and say, She's a woman! And I'll be with you. You had a kind of depressed she's a woman this time. I don't know. I I was like reading the words you wrote as you were saying. I'm just like, she's yep. saying that? Yeah, she's yes. doing it. And I do doubt. <laughs> oh, I feel delirious. <laughs> I know.